one question for you. What's that, Chris? How much did it cost you? How much what? How much did it cost you? You've been traveling, and we're going to get to hear about that in a moment. But as you and I discussed before you left, what would we do if Trump were indicted? Would we do an emergency pod from wherever in the world you are at the time? How would you be timely on political wire? And somehow, and this seems very suspicious to me, New York DA Alvin Bragg held off and took no action while you were away. I can only assume that you bribed him, which to be clear, Tegan, is illegal. So my question was, how much did it cost you? You know, Chris, you should know better as a former journalist. I would never reveal my sources or my methods. The idea that Trump avoided indictment while I was away, that's pure coincidence. This is not under oath, but it is on the record. So you did yeah, not, I'm, no bribe, gonna, you paid nothing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with my answer, Chris. Thank you. Well, you stick with that. I, I'm still a bit suspicious. Not sure that I believe you, but whatever. We're going to have to trust you on this one because we have a lot to get to, including a brief discussion on your travelogue. I do want to hear about that. We've also gotten a bunch of excellent questions from the mailbag. We'll start to attack some of those today. But first, a quick reminder, if you want to send questions for the mailbag, here's how. If you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to get in contact with Tegan via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with business or more accurately travel. On Sunday, you published a postcard from Nepal on Political Wire. You wrote, as our plane made its descent into the Kathmandu airport, it suddenly and violently jerked upward as our pilot aborted the landing. That can't feel good. We had to circle the airport and try a second time. It was quite unnerving. It turns out there was a dog on the runway, a surprising but also appropriate welcome to Nepal. So where did you go? What did you do? What did you learn? Well, it really was uh, quite a welcome to Nepal. And it's interestingly enough, it actually was very appropriate because it teaches you to expect the unexpected because you see things that you just would never see, certainly in this part of the world. But even the fact that in the country, it just runs differently. People have different expectations. And then there's also this, you know, in the back of my mind, I always wondered what would happen if you're flying into JFK in New York and there's a dog on the runway. I fear that dog would probably not be with us anymore. But in Nepal, animals are revered and there was no way they were going to hit that dog. And I think that's really kind of sums up a little bit about the country. And how were the suspension bridges? <laughs> We were hiking in the foothills of the Himalayas, and uh, they were some of the scariest bridges I saw. But I must say, even though I have a fear of heights and uh, have never liked bridges like that, that you walk across and sway in the wind, I managed to do it twice. So that was good, Chris. Any commentary before you got to Nepal? I think you might have made one other visit. Anything from India? The whole trip was terrific. We started in India. We toured the Golden Triangle between Delhi, Agra, and Jaipur. As I sent you over my vacation, I sent you some video, which was pretty extraordinary, showing the traffic in Jaipur particularly. It was crazy. It, it is wild. Our, our driver actually told us that there were three things that you needed in order to drive in India. You needed a good horn, you needed good brakes, and you needed good luck. And I have to say that was completely accurate. They use the horn, though, a little differently than we do here in New York. In New York, it's really an expression yeah, oh, of anger. The verbal equivalent of a middle finger. <laughs> Very much so. In India and also in Nepal, the horn is really, hey, 
I'm right behind you. Just want to let you know, because the cars are going every which way. Lines in the roads are mere suggestions and dogs are the least of the worries. There are cows walking across roads all over the place. And the traffic as a result is just ridiculous. And the driving rules apparently non-existent. So we saw that pretty much throughout India, also in Nepal to some extent, but we also saw some really beautiful things. In Agra, we saw the Taj Mahal. I know it's one of those seven wonders of the world, and the most amazing thing about it is that you literally can't take a picture of it that does it justice. It is the most gorgeous building I think I've ever seen. We got there early before the sun rose. The color of the building changes as the sun's rising. It's just extraordinary. And then in Nepal, some photos that I posted on Political Wire of the Himalayas. They're just the most gorgeous mountain range you've ever seen. And it's really hard to take your eyes off them. It's hard to believe that they actually exist. And there's something interesting about them. When you look at them, there's something that says humans should not be there. Humans should not climb these mountains. And of course, that's why so many humans want to, because it seems like one of those terrific challenges from the gods that has been put forward. But uh, it's really just an amazing part of the world. We had a fantastic vacation. It sounded like the trip of a lifetime, although one hopes not the last. Welcome back. Thanks, Chris. And uh, as we discussed, Alvin Bragg uh, held off any news. You know, nobody knows anything about this story, but it, it seems like a Trump indictment's not coming anytime soon. Sure doesn't feel that way. But now if it does, and we feel like doing an emergency pod, we'll have no trouble doing it. But you know what we can talk about today? No emergency pod needed. We can talk about the debt ceiling. Can we come up with a better name? It's a boring name. Think about what bomb cyclone (laughs) has done for weather reports. We need bomb cyclone is what happens after we breach the debt ceiling, Chris. Okay, so there you go. So there's some branding. Anyhow, we got to come up with something. Heather Cox Richardson wrote in her letter from an American this week, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy sent a letter to Joe Biden accusing him of being, quote, missing in action on efforts to address the approaching debt ceiling crisis. McCarthy accused Biden of putting an already fragile economy in jeopardy and tried to portray himself as the reasonable party trying to negotiate, quote, what's best for the American people. Biden responded immediately to McCarthy's extraordinary public letter with one of his own. Biden urged McCarthy once again to produce a detailed budget plan rather than vague calls for savings, quote, so we can understand the full combined impact on the deficit, the economy, and American families. Biden asked McCarthy to produce a Republican budget plan before Congress's Easter recess so that we can have an in-depth conversation when you return. That was one story. Then you posted the Punchbowl news piece, McCarthy may pass short-term debt limit increase. Punchbowl News wrote, McCarthy is considering having the House pass a short-term debt limit increase just a few months long with some modest budgetary savings provisions attached. This move would, in the House Republican leadership's view, put the ball in the Senate Democrats' court. If this tactic works, a default on the federal government's $31.4 trillion debt would be avoided and Republicans could still keep the pressure on Democrats for a permanent solution. So my questions, first one is, are you sure you wanted to return from vacation for this? You good? You can stay in leaving? <laughs> you know, as much as I'd like to, uh, I am a debt ceiling junkie. So I actually love this. And I love the politics behind this. It's very clear that Kevin McCarthy is playing defense on this, even though he might want to think it's offense by trying to force Biden's hand. But what's happened here is that Joe Biden looks at Kevin McCarthy and knows he can't pass a budget. 
his right flank, doesn't agree with the more moderate members of his party. And he knows McCarthy, his own party can't agree on the spending cuts that they keep talking about. They've already said Social Security is off the table. They've said Medicare is off the table. They've said defense cuts are off the table. And there's not a whole lot left. And some of that stuff that's left, there's not agreement in his party. So it's really interesting how Biden sees that immediately. And then immediately, that's his response, you know, within the hour of getting Kevin McCarthy's letter. But the key thing to remember is that in politics, it's usually the divided side that loses these battles. And the Republicans are divided on this. And Democrats know that. Democrats also recognize that three times during the Trump years, they raised the debt limit without asking for any new conditions, any attachments to the bill to raise the debt limit. And they're not going to do it this time. And they look at the Republicans and they see the Republicans as being weak. So I think in the end, Democrats will call Kevin McCarthy's bluff. You have a short-term debt limit bill, try to pass it. I'm not sure he can. So you don't think he can even get the short-term debt ceiling limit passed. So forget about like solving the whole problem. You don't even think that he can get the Republican votes just to kick the can down the road a few months? He might be able to, but what they've talked about in this Punchball News report is that there would be some modest spending cuts attached to that. And you know, that's not exactly what many Republicans in the caucus want. Without a budget blueprint and without Kevin McCarthy detailing the cuts, Republican lawmakers have spent much of the last few weeks throwing out their own ideas. And so when there is a leadership vacuum, a lot of lawmakers are throwing out kind of a grab bag of things that they would like to attach to a debt limit bill. The problem is, is there's no coordination from Republican leadership at this point. And so it's a bit of a mess. If I'm Biden, I call his bluff, pass the short-term debt limit. At some point, they're going to have to. And at some point, they're going to have to rely on Democratic votes to do this. But right now, Democrats are standing firm and they're saying no negotiating. Don't mean this to be you know, as silly as it sounds, but why is McCarthy doing it then? Play it out. If this approach isn't going to work, can't work, is he doing it in the short term right now simply to appease some wing of his party or some part of his party that they have to see, you know, he has to put forth that try for them to then be able to come on board for something later? Why play a hand now that has no chance of winning? Well, he's not really playing a hand because he hasn't done anything. He's just talk. He's, he sent a letter. That's pretty much it. You know, the key thing is that Biden has essentially frozen him out. He hasn't talked to Kevin McCarthy since, I think, the first week of February. So here we are at the end of March. And, you know, the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States haven't been talking about this big issue that's percolating and, you know, may explode sometime this summer. I think McCarthy realizes that's not acceptable, that he needs to be seen as trying to do something, but he hasn't done anything. He just sent a letter. And so if he wants to try to pass a short-term debt ceiling increase, let him try, and then people will react to that. But I don't think Democrats are going to negotiate against themselves right now. They're going to see what McCarthy does, and it'll be very interesting. But we all looked at the many rounds, the 15 or so rounds it took for McCarthy to be elected speaker. That's going to be easy in comparison, I think, to passing a debt limit increase with just Republican votes. At some point, they're going to need Democratic votes, I think, to pass something. But McCarthy insists he won't go there yet. So when do you think things really start to heat up? June, July? I think it'll be June. I mean, testimony before Congress this week suggests that the debt ceiling will be formally breached sometime in mid-August. So if you had plans for your August vacation, Chris, you know, you might want to cancel those because you're going to be talking debt ceiling. 
you know, it's probably sometime in June, this starts becoming a much bigger issue. And so this is all just posturing and the Democrats see the Republican Party is divided. And I don't think that there's much that the Democrats should do or can do at this point. They'll just let the Republicans try to pass something or not. And I think it's more likely that they won't be able to. I just sent a quick email to the trial balloon CEO. He says that you've already taken your vacation this year, but mine for August has been approved. If you could just hold down the fort in August, but I'm I'm good. Don't worry about my vacation. Are you the CEO or are you just the president of this podcast? I think it's a pretty flat corporate structure we have for trial balloon here. I don't want to have to have an, an HR conversation with you on mic. Why don't instead, why don't we go to the mailbag? Because we okay, let's did get- To the mailbag. To the mailbag, because we got a number of excellent questions. So thank you for those. Keep them coming. We will get to them. We've now got quite a few of them. This one came to us from Denmark, a country you did not visit this go around. Casper Christofferson wrote, Hi, Tegan. I really enjoy your podcast. The talk you had recently about how the GOP went from Reagan to Trump got me thinking, how has the Democratic Party changed in the same period and why? I'm assuming talking about universal single-payer health care or the $20 minimum wage in the 1980s would carry the risk or would have carried the risk of being locked up in a mental institution. So how has the party changed and has it been a reaction to the GOP changing? I think that's just a fantastic question because obviously when we talked about the changes to the Republican Party, there have been changes to the Democratic Party, but they're fundamentally different. The Republican Party has in effect broken apart. The coalition that allowed them to keep power has broken. That allowed Donald Trump to kind of sweep in with a new set of ideologies, a new set of policy proposals, and he's tried to reformulate a new Republican coalition. Whether he's successful or not, we will see. But right now, it seems quite broken from what the Republican Party used to be. That did not really happen on the Democratic side. Obviously, the Democratic Party under Bill Clinton had moved to the center, the New Democrats, they were called. And this was the way for Democrats after their long years in the wilderness to basically retake power. And Bill Clinton was quite successful doing that. The Democratic Party since then, of course, has definitely gotten more liberal over the years. But there's a difference. It's simply there is an ideological consistency from left to right that is still consistent within the Democratic Party. That's just a degree of how far they want to go. So when it's providing health care, every one of the Democratic senators wants to do something to provide and expand health care to people in this country. And they have varying plans, but there's an ideological consistency in the party that still exists. That doesn't exist when you look at the right wing of the Republican Party and then some of the more moderate Republicans who are serving. They don't agree on a whole lot, actually, except for holding power. That's pretty much it. I think that's the fundamental difference between the two parties and what's happened to them over the course of the last 25 years. You say that the Democratic Party didn't break and that the Republican Party did, and I agree with that. But how much of that on the Democratic side was because of Trump? that if not but for the grace of Donald Trump becoming president, the progressive wing and the moderate wing, yes, I, I hear you. There is a consistency. You know, they, they all have a health care plan or believe in some type of public funding of that nature, even go all the way to the moderate side to a Joe Manchin. But do you not think that the progressives and moderates could have split so far? I mean, they were pretty far apart and they came together in 2020 really against Trump. 
but if not but for that, is the schism even greater than you're stating? And if it hadn't been for those externalities, maybe we'd be talking about the broken Democratic Party. I mean, I think that the emergence of Trump has definitely helped solidify the Democratic Party. I mean, he is so offensive to so many things that Democrats held true that it's allowed Democrats to stay much more united. And Republicans have not taken the same path. They've pretty much rallied around Trump as best they could. Trump was able to rebuild a coalition, mainly relying on rural voters, non-college educated voters who came out to vote for the first time. And that's how Republicans gained power under Trump. The Democrats haven't really had that same problem. They do better in elections when the Obama coalition, for instance, which pairs together minority voters and young voters, when those voters actually turn out, they've tended to turn out more in the presidential election years than they do in the midterm years. But even as we saw over the course of the last few elections, those voters have still carried Democrats and have still been fairly active, allowing Democrats to stay consistent. There's a lot more in common between a Bernie Sanders for instance, and a Joe Manchin than there is on the Republican side between a Mitt Romney and perhaps a Tommy Tuberville. So in, in thinking about this question, do you know what I really thought was the biggest symbol of how far, how much the Democratic Party has evolved in the last 30 years? What's that? Jimmy Carter. The fact that Jimmy Carter today is being widely hailed as a heroic American And Biden, as you know, has agreed to give his eulogy in the 90s and a little bit beyond. Democrats ran far away from Carter. Clinton famously wouldn't let him speak at his Democratic conventions. I don't think Obama did either. Carter did speak at the 2004 convention. I saw that video. But in 2012, Scarlett Johansson spoke at the Democratic convention, but Carter didn't. In 2016, with Hillary Clinton, Sarah Silverman and Elizabeth Banks spoke at the convention, but Carter didn't. And now, as Carter, as of this recording, is still in hospice, Biden has agreed to give his eulogy, and Carter is being hailed by basically every Democrat at this point as uh, having been a heroic American. The transformation of the perception around Jimmy Carter is highly emblematic of the transition that has occurred within the Democratic Party. I think that's very interesting. Obviously, Jimmy Carter was widely considered a failed president. He was not successful, although that blockbuster story that we read about how uh, the Republicans got the Iranians to keep the hostages until Reagan was sworn in and that they'd get a better deal from Reagan is really just extraordinary. So very interesting that 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 now while Carter is still living. But I think Jimmy Carter, he is a symbol for what the Democratic Party has always stood for, trying to help people. He tried to do that as president, maybe not as successfully as some have done, but he also tried to do that when he left the presidency. That is the common bind from Democrats, whether it's Bernie Sanders or whether it's Joe Manchin. Democrats believe that government can do good and Democrats embrace that and try to solve problems that the public has. It's often messy. Sometimes it doesn't work like it didn't in the Carter years, but there is that consistency of what they're trying to do. The Republican Party has had that. The old Republican Party definitely had some ideological consistency in terms of what they were trying to do. But in recent years, and certainly under Trump, it's very unclear what that is. I think it's a fantastic question. I think there have been changes, obviously, to the Democratic Party. Each successive presidential election changes the party. Sometimes the coalitions fragment. Sometimes they come back together. But it is very interesting to see how Biden governed 
He spent his first two years governing as a very much on the progressive side of things. Now he seems to be tacking back to the center, pushing back on issues like immigration and spending and things like that. Biden is a smart politician. He realizes that there's still a swing voter out there and that Democrats need to attract that swing voter away from the Republicans in order to win national elections. And so that's what he's doing. Welcome back, Tegan. Good to have you on Domestic Shores. (laughs) Thanks, Chris.